And let's say I'm a juror. I say, okay, you want me to believe that your client falsely confessed to a crime he didn't commit. I, I would never do that. Why would anybody do that? Now, you also want me to believe that these police officers who gave him the Miranda warnings up front, they got this false confession? Okay, yeah, sure. It was a long interrogation, but they didn't hit him. And now you're telling me that not only did he falsely confess after being Mirandized, no physical coercion, and now you're telling me that he remembered doing it? And now he says it was a false memory? So these cases are so contrary to common sense that they are extremely difficult to defend. Greetings and welcome to Briefly, a production by the University of Chicago Law Review. I'm your host, Tai Chen, and today we'll be discussing false confessions, the social psychology behind the puzzling phenomenon, and recommendations for criminal justice reform. Our featured guest for today is Richard A. Leo, a professor of law and psychology at the University of San Francisco School of Law. Professor Leo is a recognized expert on police interrogation tactics, psychological coercion, false confessions, and wrongful convictions. It is a pleasure to have you on the episode. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I look forward to our conversation today. So over the course of today's episode on false confessions, I'd like to cover insights from social psychology, perform a case study on the Central Park Five case, and discuss potential reforms to our criminal justice system. To set the stage for today's discussion, it'd be helpful to define a few key terms. So Professor Leo, how would you define a false confession? Well, a confession, I guess you could define it with a small c and a big C. So with a big C, the way I think about it at least is, like a spectrum from an incriminating statement to a admission to a full confession. So by an incriminating statement, what I mean is a statement that is made typically during an interrogation that the prosecution or state can infer that the person has some level of guilty knowledge about the crime or is making some admission, however vague, that reflects some level of guilt, but doesn't rise to the level of an admission, which is an I did it statement. And then a confession would be I did it plus an explanation of how and why the person did it. So sometimes when we talk about confessions, small c, we're talking about the end point of that spectrum. I did it. Here's how and why I did it. Big C is more of an umbrella term. Confession might include an incriminating statement, an admission, or a confession, a small c confession, admission plus narrative. So that's what we mean by confession. And a false confession, whether it's small c or big C, a false confession would be an admission to an act that the person did not commit, and often with an explanation, incriminating themselves for the act they did not commit. And what are some of the policy concerns that are implicated here? What makes false confessions so problematic? Confessions, as you know, are a piece of evidence that are used to solve crimes, and they're a very important piece of evidence. We want to encourage, I believe, reliable and voluntary and fairly obtained confessions in a democratic society. And the problem with false confessions is that they are typically induced through interrogations and sometimes they are involuntary or they violate the autonomy and dignity of the individual who's giving them. That person feels forced. And sometimes they're factually unreliable or wholly false. And so you get situations where innocent people 
get charged with crimes they didn't commit. Sometimes they spend a lot of time in jail before they're released or acquitted, or they get convicted, really the worst outcome in the system in many ways, and they're wrongfully incarcerated for years or decades if they're exonerated or before they're exonerated. Uh, And then you have the other situation that bothers some people as much and others not as much, which would be perhaps a guilty person who was coerced psychologically into making a statement against their interests, but nevertheless is properly convicted from a truth or accuracy standpoint. That all makes a lot of sense. Thank you. And do you have any thoughts about how prevalent the phenomenon is? I know there are certain studies that have suggested that up to 25% of wrongful convictions are due to false confessions. Usually when someone asks about the prevalence, they're interested in how frequently false confessions occur. And we don't know how frequently false confessions occur. We don't know how frequently true confessions occur. We don't even know how frequently police interrogate and get confessions or statements because the government doesn't track that data. There's no national organization that keeps track of it or even has access to it. I think you're asking the more informed question, which is what percentage of wrongful convictions are attributable to false confessions? Now, the Innocence Project, which is a real trailblazer in this area, as you may know, they formed in 1992, but the first DNA exonerations were in 1989, and now there's almost 400 DNA exonerations. And we have great confidence that those DNA exonerations are accurately releasing people from prison based on science who are factually innocent. And prior to the rise of DNA and the application of it in the criminal justice system, when people talked about wrongful convictions, they typically meant a factually innocent man or woman who didn't commit the crime. So these were typically called wrong man cases. That was another term in the 1930s and 40s when research on this subject first started. So if you look at the DNA exonerations, about 15 to 20% of those cases involve individuals who falsely confessed. Now, when the Innocence Project talks about it, they're quoting a higher number. They're quoting 25 to 30%. And the reason they're quoting that number is because some of their cases have multiple co-defendants. And so let's say you have four people who were convicted of a murder and none of them committed. There's a famous case actually in Chicago and Professor Al Schuler, a professor emeritus at the University of Chicago Law School worked on this case called the Ford Heights Four, where four people were uh, eventually exonerated by DNA for a crime they didn't commit. If my memory is correct, one of the four, possibly two, but one of the four confessed. So the Innocence Project, when they use the case as a unit of analysis, would count that as a false confession for each of the individuals. And so they'll say 25 to 30% of our cases involve false confessions. But when the unit of analysis with the Innocence Project DNA cases is not the case, but the individual, about 15% or 20%. So that's pure, factual, wrongful convictions. Now, you may have heard of the National Registry of Exonerations started at the University of Michigan Law School, which is another database that people look at. That database looks at procedural error, and people often conflate that with factual innocence. In that database, the numbers are slightly lower. About 12 to 13% of the individuals who are exonerated by the definition of the University of Michigan, which is a, a reversal of a conviction, not a pure judgment of factual innocence, 
12 to 13% of those individuals falsely confess, and about 19% of those cases involve false confessions. So we don't know how frequently they occur, but we know that they occur about one in six, one in five of wrongful convictions and exonerations, and there seems to be a regularity to it. So I've been studying this for almost 30 years now, and false confessions just don't seem to go away. There have been a lot of reforms in the last 30 years. There's a persistence to the problem. And scholars often believe that that the cases we know about are the tip of the iceberg, that it's so hard for cases to come to our attention. There's so many reasons why we would miss them in the absence of a national representative database that it's like the, like I sometimes tell my students, if you live in New York City, you know that in many of the buildings, even the high-end buildings, there's cockroaches. And if you turn on your kitchen light and you see one, everybody knows there's not just one cockroach in the building. Just like if a baseball player tests positive for steroids, it may be that the cases we catch are uh, advertising the existence of many more that we do not. And so it sounds like whichever methodology we go with here, we get to a rate of one in six or one in five wrongful convictions are due to false confessions. And if what you're saying about the stickiness of the problem is true, and if it's just the tip of the iceberg, it, it seems like there's room for improvement here. Before diving into the potential reforms for our legal system, I'd like to discuss some of the underlying principles from social psychology that might be at play here. And I think that there are several different approaches we could take given the number of relevant players. When it comes to the confessors, are false confessions a byproduct of individual pathology? And at the interrogation stage, how much of the problem arises because of overly zealous law enforcement or overly coercive interrogation tactics? And finally, in the courtroom, um, is there anything that judges and jurors should be doing differently when they think about false confession evidence? I'd like to start at the interrogation stage and with law enforcement. And so, Professor Leo, could you tell us about interrogation and some of the social psychology forces that might come into play there? So typically people who are suspects are interrogated. They're not interviewed. An interview would be a question and answer session, just like we're having here. Uh, Whereas an interrogation is not designed necessarily or primarily to get the truth. It's designed to move a suspect who is presumed or believed guilty. There may be a good basis for that. There may not be from the denials that the police expect and or are getting to an admission and full confession narrative that they seek. And so police will accuse a suspect, they will challenge their denials, they will confront them with real or imagined evidence, they will suggest reasons why they're better off if they confess and worse off if they don't. So in terms of positive and negative reinforcement, when the interrogator accuses the suspect and the suspect says, I didn't do it, it's immediate negative reinforcement. We know you're lying. Uh, you know, we've got plenty of evidence. You need to tell us the truth. And if the suspect says, well, okay, look, I didn't, my initial story was not 100% true. I neglected to tell you this. That's really good. That's really good, Johnny. Um, now you're starting to tell the truth. That's what we're here for. We, we need to get the truth. And so you get that kind of conditioning back and forth. and you, you also get this, uh, the, the idea of inducements, the appeals to self-interest, why somebody is better off if they cooperate and admit as opposed to continue to deny. And so give you an example, a classic example, police may say, you know, we, we don't think you intended to do this. It was just an accident. 
anybody could have made this mistake, we would have made this mistake, it was just a spur of the moment thing. But if you don't tell us the truth or you don't admit to what you did, people are going to think it was premeditated or intentional. Maybe you have a pattern of this. Are you a serial rapist or a serial killer? People are going to think that as opposed to just an accident. And so you see how that too relies on kind of positive and negative, if not conditioning messages about the value supposedly of confessing versus denying. And so I'd like to dive straight into discussing social biases that might be at play here. Could you tell us about tunnel vision and confirmation bias? Because my suspicion is that interrogators might be forming preconceived notions or initial impressions that are then coloring the way they interpret subsequent happenings. So, so that is true in an interrogation. Interrogation in America is guilt presumptive. They are trained that once you conclude that a suspect in your mind is guilty, the goal of the interrogation is to get a confession. And the techniques they're trained in are not only accusatory, but they're designed to break down denials and elicit the admissions, as I mentioned. So once police interrogate, they're not supposed to be evaluating whether or not the person's telling the truth or lying. They've already made that determination. Person's guilty. Now they need to be interrogated. And the confession is the goal. So confirmation bias is a basic uh, aspect of human behavior that's been well-documented. When we have a strong belief Consciously and subconsciously, we look for information that is consistent with that belief, and we are less critical about that information that we seek out than information that calls into question our beliefs, which we are more critical about or selectively discount or ignore. And confirmation bias persists over time, so we tend to remember information that's more consistent with our beliefs as well as forgetting information that's less consistent. So it's a ubiquitous universal human phenomena in every aspect of life, sometimes more accentuated, sometimes not, in police interrogation, which is inherently adversarial and guilt presumptive. The problem is if the police make a mistake in the investigative phase and lock onto an innocent person, the confirmation bias or tunnel vision They're going to be motivated to see every aspect of the suspect's behavior, demeanor, and what they're saying as evidence of guilt. And that's going to reinforce their belief in the person's guilt. And it's going to drive the police inexorably to an erroneous conclusion because that's what they're looking for. They're looking for the confession to confirm their pre-existing belief in the person's guilt. And of course, we know lots of times confessions don't do that because they are either partially or wholly false. And what is the interpersonal expectancy effect? And how might it relate to some of the principles we have just discussed? Well, expectancy refers often to self-fulfilling prophecies or how people respond to other people's expectations. And uh, in the context of interrogation, Uh, People who confess are often made to feel hopeless. They are pressured and persuaded to uh, stop denying and start admitting, as I've been saying. And oftentimes, when they falsely confess, just come to believe they really have no other choice, that they're being pressured and persuaded by the examiner who expects that they will confess. And oftentimes, they do. So, uh, so all authority figures convey expectations that 
influence the behavior of others and then get fed back to the authority figure and sometimes confirm the beliefs of the authority figures. And sometimes the authority figures, whether it's police interrogators or in other contexts, don't appreciate how their influence in the context of interrogation, I'll say techniques, but how their expectations, their behavior, the messages they send are affecting others to parrot them back, especially in high pressure or coercive situations. And so there's a lot of interpersonal expectancy typically going on in interrogation. Now, some people resist and don't confess, and some people, of course, confess truthfully. Uh, but it's not merely a conversation, and it's not on a level playing field. On that note, social psychology obviously has much to say about obedience and authority. Specifically, I'm thinking about the Stanford Prison Experiment or Milgram's Shock Experiments. Uh, is any of that relevant here? Well, some, some experts in my field emphasize those more than others. Uh, I think what, this, what the obedience to authority, Milgram's famous experience teaches, is that people are willing to inflict a lot of pain on another individual um, if told to do so by authority figures. And Zimbardo's prison experiment, I think, illustrates that we all have in us, if we're given enough power in situations, to, to, to be sadistic or to impose pain and punishment on others. I think interrogation is a little bit more civilized typically than both of those environments. So in the Milgram experiment, which of course has a film, because Milgram, I think correctly, assumed nobody would believe it, at least at the time, you, see, you, you hear these screams and you see the experimenter saying, up the pressure, up the pressure. And uh, the experimental subjects who are administering the torture are very compliant. Interrogation has a lot of psychological pressure, sometimes psychological coercion, but there's no torturing of people. Um, and there are some exceptions. Sadly, the city of Chicago in the 1970s and 80s with John Burge and many others in, the, in Area 2 and Area 3 were torturing suspects, largely but not entirely African-Americans, mostly in high-profile and homicide cases. But outside of that, and a few other notable exceptions, there really isn't torture. Nobody's asking to administer torture in the interrogation. I think um, the Zimbardo experiment may be more relevant in that police or prison guards or anybody with a lot of power can easily abuse that, but interrogation rooms are strictly regulated. And if, which is to say they are a police citizen encounter that has more law and more history behind it than many other places where police and suspects in, or, or places in the system where they encounter one another. Um, and so with recording and with the development of case law, I think there's less likely to be abuses of power in that setting than in other settings, although we continue to see abuses of power. And one of the cases we're going to talk about, the Central Park Five case, I think involved a lot of abuse of power. I look forward to our discussion about the Central Park Five case. Uh, but before we transition to the case study, there are a few more topics from social psychology that I want to make sure we hit upon. What is the role of false memories in this context? So when somebody falsely confesses, uh, it's typically what we call a compliant false confession. The term doesn't really matter. It's just jargon. But it means that the person 
knowingly falsely confesses. They're overwhelmed. They're feeling coerced. They feel like they have no choice. They just want to get out of there. Maybe they're thinking about proving their innocence later, but they knowingly falsely confess. And many people in our lives have done some smaller version of this. Um, I like to joke that if anybody's been married, they understand when a spouse puts enough pressure on you, you agree, even if you think what you're agreeing to is false and maybe vice versa. But, you know, people falsely take responsibility to get out of situations where the stakes are much lower, right? So, so a compliant false confession, which is the overwhelming majority of documented false confessions, is where the person is stressed or coerced to the point where they will just give the interrogator what the interrogator is looking for to put an end to the interrogation, get out of the interrogation room, and deal with the issue of proving their innocence later. There is a second type of false confession. We sometimes call it a persuaded or internalized. It's the same term, and again, the term doesn't matter because it's just, it's just academic jargon for our purposes. But that is the kind of confession that is far more counterintuitive. And I'll try to be brief in my description. The interrogator accuses the suspect. The suspect denies. At some point, typically, and this may go on for hours, the issue of memory comes up. And the suspect might say, look, I couldn't have done this because I don't remember it. The interrogator, remember interrogation's guilt presumptive, the interrogator thinks that's just a lie and suggests that the suspect could have done it in the absence of memory. Now, the interrogator to this point would have been lying typically about evidence, pretending to have evidence they don't have, accusing the suspect, challenging the suspect's denials. And if the suspect comes to believe that the interrogator is not lying. How many of us know outside of law school in the legal profession or sons and daughters of police officers and prosecutors, how many of us know that police can lie about evidence? Say they have your fingerprints, say they have your DNA, say they have you captured on a video, say that your own mother says you did it or you told her, right? So the person, if they defer in their judgment to the police and think, okay, well, they got me, maybe I forgot. And then the police say, People repress memories of this all the time, very common. And the suspect comes to think they must have done it because of the evidence, because of the memory repression theory that the police, who are supposed to be experts, who they don't think can lie to them, the person may come to believe they committed a crime despite having no memory. And then the once they show that weakness, the interrogator pounces on them. And typically the interrogator, because they think that person's lying and really does have a memory, thinks that the denial of memory is a lie and the admission that maybe they did the memory is partially along the way of getting the confession. And so the interrogator suggests if the person just thinks about it, they can find the memory. But the person's innocent, even though the interrogator thinks they're guilty. So long story short, they come to confabulate. They make good faith guesses. They sometimes confuse dreams for reality or they will try to imagine or reconstruct in their mind what happened or could have happened. And so the reason that I I make the distinction between belief and memory is because in most of these cases, the person comes to believe that they committed a crime in the absence of memory, and they come to speculate or confabulate or hypothesize about how they would have done it, all the while trying to search for the memories that they can't find or that they're making up. Once removed from that interrogation situation, they typically realize in short order, whether they officially recant or not, 
that they had no memory. They were bamboozled by the cops and they didn't do it. So it sounds like it's very important for us to be precise with our language and that there is a distinction between a false belief and a false memory. Um, are there any concrete examples you could use to help us illustrate this point? Now, in some situations, innocent people who've been interrogated over long courses of periods of time. There was a case in Washington, Paul Ingram. He was interrogated at least 23 times over a six-month period, including with uh, his pastor, and he was very religious, and he came to develop memories, not beliefs, but actual memories. I wrote a book about a case called the Norfolk Four, where one of the individuals, Joseph Dick Jr., there were four individuals wrongly convicted, exonerated by DNA. One of them came to develop long-term memories after many interrogations, not just by the police, but by his lawyer and by his family. So it's, it's rare that people develop actual full-fledged memories, but in this small percentage of false confessions, which numerically may be high, people develop false beliefs that they committed a crime despite no memory. And these are the cases that trouble me the most, because if you put yourself in the shoes of the jury or of the defense lawyer, let's say I'm a juror, I say, okay, you want me to believe that your client falsely confessed to a crime he didn't commit. I, I would never do that. Why would anybody do that? Now, you also want me to believe that these police officers who gave him the Miranda warnings up front, they got this false confession? Okay, yeah, sure. It was a long interrogation, but they didn't hit him. And now you're telling me that not only did he falsely confess after being Mirandized, no physical coercion. And by the way, the guy's a college graduate. He's not mentally ill. Now you're telling me that he remembered doing it? And now he says it was a false memory? So these cases are so contrary to common sense that they are extremely difficult to defend. And Professor Al Schuler's long since retired, but you know he was famous for his research on plea bargaining and 95% or 90 or 98, depending on the jurisdiction, result in plea bargains. So you can only imagine the pressure to plead guilty. The defense attorney would say to you, you know, if you get convicted, worst possible outcome, you're looking at 20 to life. There's, there's six on the table, six to eight, depending on what the judge gives. Now, it's your decision, but you know, this confession, look, I, I as your counsel, I believe it's false, and I'm going to aggressively litigate this confession. We can get experts, you know, we can try to knock it out pretrial, not likely to happen. But uh, if you get convicted, you know, you could be in prison for the rest of your life, six to eight years, you've already been in pretrial detention, you know, there might be a shaving off, depending on the jurisdiction, a shaving off of some of that time. So it's not just that these are hard to defend, it's that it's that there's increased pressure to then repeat the lie of the false confession at a pretrial hearing to avoid the worst possible outcome. And so what I'm hearing is that the social forces and situational biases are tremendously powerful here. The last piece of all this that I wanted to cover, and this is something you mentioned in passing earlier, is how much of this do you think is attributable to the individual herself or himself? In other words, should we conceptualize this problem as shortcomings of the criminal justice system and problematic interrogation tactics? Or is there a subset of criminal defendants that is predisposed towards providing false confessions? So, so I think those are great and important questions. When you frame it as individual pathology as opposed to 
individual vulnerability, then I think about mental illness. And people who are mentally ill, particularly people who have reality monitoring disorders who are delusional, or people who have mental illnesses, you know, technically depression is a mental illness, especially clinical depression, or people who have high anxiety disorders, they will be more vulnerable for perhaps more obvious reasons and disproportionately likely to falsely confess. But most false confessions are not from people with mental disorders. Now, there are a couple other groups, juveniles, uh, people who have low IQs, particularly people who we formerly referred to as mentally retarded. Now we describe them as intellectually disabled with IQs of 70 and below, although 70 is an arbitrary line. You know, if your IQ is 74, 98% of the population processes information more quickly than you, you're still going to be highly vulnerable. So those individuals unquestionably are more vulnerable. They're disproportionately represented in the known universe of proven false confessors. There's a lot of research on juveniles, and there's a lot of protections we can talk about for juveniles. Uh, there's a lot of research on people with intellectual or cognitive disabilities, formerly known as the mentally retarded. There's not as much research on mental illness. Uh, and it's a field that psychiatry has been slow to get to. It would be great if the field of psychiatry, and I'm not talking about practicing psychiatrists, I'm talking about research psychiatrists who have the time to really study this. It would be great if they contributed more to the academic literature. Most of the literature is about the system and how police interrogation practices, the police environment, police investigative practices create the conditions that increase the risk for false confessions. Now, if there are many other experts like me in this field, I may be, you know, one of them who's been doing this the longest. And for that reason, I may be more well known than many others, but there are many, many experts in my field. And if you had, let's say, a round table of five, my guess is that three or four of them, possibly all four except me, would have a harsher critique of police than me. And so there's often a lot of anger about how police interrogate, and I share that in some cases, like the Central Park Jogger case. But I tend to think of police as mostly good people who are trying to do a difficult job, who don't want to get innocent people convicted, and don't want to elicit false or extract false confessions, and that these false confessions result from poor training, overzealous police work, psychologically coercive and overbearing techniques that police are not aware are psychologically coercive and overbearing, or not always aware, and that um, uh, police violate best known best practices because the culture permits or encourages it. So I don't, I don't typically attribute malice or ill will. There's a lot of tunnel vision, confirmation bias, stupidity, ignorance, overzealousness, aggressiveness, inappropriate techniques, but I don't attribute malice and bad faith. Sure, in the John Burge torture scandals, torture cases, uh, some of which are still winding their way through civil courts where the city of Chicago is denying liability, there was a lot of ill will. We can find isolated examples of that. So, so I think that if we want to reform, the best way to minimize 
false and involuntary confessions is to focus on the interrogation environment and the interrogation techniques and the interrogators and training and monitoring them better than we have done in the past. Fantastic. Thank you so much for the helpful and instructive insights. I think this would be a good point for us to transition to applying some of these principles in our case study. Could you tell us about the Central Park Five case and your involvement with two of the criminal defendants? Sure. So, uh, ironically, I was a student at the University of Chicago at the time in 1989. So, uh, as many people may know now, there was a 28-year-old investment banker who was jogging through Central Park wearing, I think, a Sony Walkman at the time. And she was brutally assaulted, brutally raped. She was unconscious. She lost most of the blood in her body. And she was basically left for dead. The New York police discovered her body since she was unconscious. And because they thought she was going to die, they the homicide detectives took over the investigation, even though ultimately she lived, thank God. And uh, there had been a group of um, juveniles, young juveniles, uh, mostly people of color, who had gone through Central Park that night, sometimes harassing or assaulting bike riders or joggers in the park. The police isolated individuals with that group or who had been with that group at some point and ended up interrogating a number of individuals and getting confessions from five of them. Now, some of those five individuals had been with the group at some point in time, but none of those five individuals committed the crime. In fact, nobody in that group of so-called wilders committed this crime. So uh, this was prior to OJ, the trial of the century, the trial of the 20th century. It was high profile. Now, there was no internet back then. There was no Facebook or Twitter. Uh, and so you know, it's kind of a prehistoric age from the perspective of the media. I remember as a student at the University of Chicago, I didn't particularly pay a lot of attention to it, though it was front page news, but it seemed to me that everybody, and I'm, I mean just about everybody, maybe the African-American community in New York City was different, but almost everybody just assumed it was a foregone conclusion that they did it. The five boys did it. They were ultimately convicted and Sadly, they spent many years in prison before they were exonerated. In 2002, I believe, may have been 2003 or 2001, but Mateus Reyes came forward. He was in prison. He committed many crimes like this, said he did it. He found religion in prison and he confessed and he provided details that the true perpetrator had known that were not public and his DNA matched. And all five of the boys, their DNA had not matched. And the DNA had been left behind by the rapist who violently assaulted her. So I was not involved in the original case, but I was involved in the civil case. And I, I don't want to give an impromptu lecture on the case. I will merely tell you that all five boys were coerced, phys not physically, but psychologically. Now, a couple of them said they were tapped on the, um, on the chest or on the forehead. And so that would be very mild physical coercion, but all of them describe being held for long periods of time, being yelled at, being threatened, being told that they could go home if they just admitted to some knowledge, minimal role in what occurred. And in addition to that, they were spoon-fed the case facts because they didn't know them, and then 
They were lied to about false and non-existent evidence, and then they spit it back in minimal accounts, thinking that they could go home, and then they were arrested and prosecuted for murder. And in a couple of the instances, the parents or guardians had been present with them, and they uh, were the, the the they believed the police knew what they were talking about and pressured their own children or the juveniles to to do what the police were saying and confess their knowledge and participation, even though it was one hundred percent false. So this is a tragic case for a lot of reasons. And one of the things that illustrates, and then I'll stop, um, is that, you know, you think one false confession is counterintuitive. There are many cases like this. I wrote a book about the Norfolk Four, four false confessions, all proven false by DNA. I worked on a case called the Beatrice Six. There were six innocent defendants. I believe three of them had falsely confessed, and uh, one of them had also pled, which is technically a false confession, but didn't confess to police. So, so oftentimes you see multiple false confessions, not just one false confession. Understood. And thank you for setting up the framework for today's case study. What I was hoping we could accomplish today is to use the fact pattern of this case to help shed light on potential avenues for reform moving forward. To that end, could you tell us a little bit more about the interrogation process that occurred and any interrogation tactics that you found especially concerning? Yeah, I think the Central Park Jogger case is an excellent example to talk through some of these issues. Now, before I do, I'll just say there's disputed accounts about what occurred during the interrogation. Uh, Since we now know that with 100% certainty, Mateus Reyes did this crime, all five boys are innocent, they were nowhere near the jogger. They didn't touch her. They didn't see her. They didn't rape her. They didn't assault her. They had nothing to do with the crime. I think we can now say their accounts are the accounts of what occurred in the interrogation that we have to listen to because the police officer accounts, all they say is, we just told them they were lying and they need to tell the truth. They're so whitewashed and sanitized that they are utterly implausible. Okay. So going on, the accounts of the uh, five boys who were defendants in the criminal case, eventually plaintiffs in the civil case, and their relatives who were present, consistent with their accounts, or outside rooms and could hear things. First of all, the interrogations lasted way, way, way too long. They were there between 14 and 30 hours. Some were there overnight. They hadn't slept. They hadn't eaten. So the, the leading interrogation training manual buried deep in its appendix, says don't go over four hours. Some academics have said don't go over six. I can tell you 95% of interrogations don't go more than two hours based on our empirical studies. I I don't have a good number for, for a time limit, but we can't have interrogations going on 14 and 30 hours, especially of juveniles. So one best practice would be to have regular breaks and not have interrogations go on overnight or for excessively lengthy periods of time, wherever we draw that line. And why not take what law enforcement suggests and say four hours? I mean, you know, you're at the University of Chicago, which is, I think, one of the most intellectually exciting, if not the most intellectually exciting place in the country. Uh, But 
Imagine being in a four-hour seminar, a four-hour class. No matter how much you liked it, you'd be exhausted by the end of it, right? Even a two-hour class, probably you're exhausted by the end of it. And that's nothing like an interrogation, although at the University of Chicago, you know, probably the Socratic method, if any place in law school today means the Socratic method, it's probably there uh, as we've all watered it down in our teaching um, in the last 20 years. But we have to have some best practice recommendation on length of interrogation, which induces sleep and other forms of physiological deprivation that make people more vulnerable. And forgive me, Professor, for uh, jumping in with a quick follow-up question. As you mentioned, with regard to best practices, time limits for interrogation sessions are already in force and are already outlined in police training manuals. And I guess my question is, what else should we be doing and where do we go from here? Well, for, for my entire career on this, the primary um, recommendation I've made is mandatory electronic recording. Now, when I started in 1990 studying this, there was only one state, Alaska, that mandated electronic recording, full electronic recording, uh, since 1985. And essentially, they found through their constitution that it was required by the due process clause of their state constitution. Great opinion, basically saying you can't have fair process if you don't have a record. And we can now create records through then video recording. And so there's a rebuttable presumption a confession will be excluded unless there is a full recording so that there's a factual basis on which to evaluate the voluntariness and reliability of the confession. Since then, uh, I believe 25, 26, maybe even 27 states now have partial or full electronic recording requirements. In my state, California, and I believe in your state, Illinois, or at least the state in which the University of Chicago is located, the um, the rule by law is only in homicide cases. Now, I would like to see it in all cases. And the technology has gotten so good that you could have motion-activated cameras inside the interrogation rooms, literally through peepholes, that um, transmit a computer file electronically to a centralized database that takes up almost no storage, right? So now you might say that wasn't really your question, but I think that's the predicate for all reforms because we need to have a factual record of what occurred so that when best practices are violated, like the interrogation goes on too long or they use promises and threats, we know. We don't have a swearing contest I didn't, like in the Central Park Jogger case, I, I never threatened, he threatened me. I never lied, he lied to me. And you mentioned the use of promises in conjunction with threats. Is this related at all to minimization and maximization, which are interrogation techniques that have been very controversial? Maximization, minimization. All right, so Professor Saul Kasson coined this term, and uh, it is a term that essentially means there's two scenarios, a good scenario and a bad scenario. The interrogator suggests the good scenario minimizes culpability, minimizes blameworthiness, minimizes consequences. That's if you admit the bad scenario is if you continue to deny, it exaggerates or maximizes culpability and consequences. So I started to refer in a prior answer earlier to a classic example of this. I'm interrogating you for a homicide, and I say, look, Ty, uh, 
you know, we've, we've got the evidence. This is the pre-minimization maximization. We're, we're beyond whether or not you did it. The issue is not whether. The issue is why. Okay, now the minimization maximization. You know, I think this was an accident. You know, they came at you in self-defense. Your tempers were high. You had been arguing at the bar. Uh, this wasn't premeditated. People understand. You need to take responsibility. It was a spur of the moment. You were provoked. Hell, I've had arguments about this, and you know he insulted you. I would have done the same thing, right? The the development of the accident, self-defense, provocation, trying to suggest, or maybe blaming the victim. This happens a lot too. This guy was a criminal. He was a jerk. You did a favor to society. You got rid of him. It's not your fault, right? This sort of suggestion that if you just admit, and it usually is followed by, you know, people are gonna people are gonna think about this. You know, like. I have to write in my report whether you were a good guy and you admitted the truth and it was an accident, my boss or the judge, the jury, the prosecutor, kind of spinning the inference that what you say will affect their perceptions of your blameworthiness, culpability, and therefore, by implication, what's going to happen to you. Whereas if you continue to deny, the flip side of that would be, now, look, people are going to think this was premeditated. You knew this guy who was yelling at you in the bar. You guys had some bad blood between you. You went to this pool hall. What were you? Were you trying to hustle this guy? Right. So, so people are going to think this was premeditated. And you know, you've done some shady things in the past. Maybe people will think that some of your other interactions with other people. Yeah. Now, you know, I don't. You don't have a criminal record, but some people who are interrogated do, and they might be accused of multiple crimes. Let's say gang members, for example. Um, in gang shootings, where the suggestion would be that if you admit to the accident or self-defense, the minimization, right, you get the favorable perceptions and consequences. But if you continue to deny, people will think you're a serial killer, premeditated, intentional. Maybe you've done this before, you'll do it again. And that's going to affect how I write up the report and what a judge or a jury or prosecutor would think. This technique, the problem with it is it communicates different by implication, differential sentencing, punishment, um, expectations. So people infer from this technique, even though it's not explicitly stated, they will get leniency if they confess, even if they confess inaccurately, and they will get harsher treatment, perhaps longer punishment, more charges if they don't confess. And to the extent this technique communicates those implications, um, it's a problem. It is psychologically coercive. It leads to a higher degree of false confessions. And so it sounds like we need to be mindful of the potential signaling effects when we use a technique like minimization to make sure that we're not making promises of leniency. And to recap, in this segment, we've talked about length of interrogation sessions, mandatory recording, and minimization and maximization. The final interrogation technique that I wanted to discuss is false evidence. Could you tell us about the use of false evidence and why it's so problematic? So the false evidence, um, uh, Richard Offshe and I coined the term that's often used in the literature, false evidence ploy, and that's where the police say we have evidence, typically they say irrefutable or conclusive evidence. It could be they tell you you failed a polygraph exam, you didn't fail, and even if you did, it's false evidence because the polygraph is junk science and can't tell whether you're lying or telling the truth. But oftentimes it's not that. It's an eyewitness, a co-conspirator identified you, ratted you out. We have you on videotape, as I mentioned earlier, is very common these days. 
or taking a sample of their hair or saliva and then saying, we have your evidence, it matches, when none of that is true. So the problem with, well, I should say, police often refer to this technique as a ruse. We call it false evidence. Normal people would call it a lie. The problem is that most people don't know that police can lie about evidence, and it alters and distorts people's perceptions of reality. It intimidates them. It can cause them to doubt their memory and think they must have done something they have no memory of. It can cause people to think they're going to be railroaded. They have no choice but to confess. So it's a very controversial technique in terms of um, the research community and people who study this. Now, in law enforcement, it's not controversial. In the courts, for the most part, it's not controversial. But I guarantee you that if you or anybody else go out into your community of non-lawyers, non-law students, you go to church, supermarket, you know, to your high school reunion, whatever, you know, you know people who are, work on Wall Street or you come from a different background and you know people you know, who have working class jobs, whatever, and you, you do a survey of these people and say, did you know police can lie about evidence? Make up your fingerprints, make people be shocked. Most people would just be shocked and they would say that's immoral. So the problem from a research point of view is that the empirical problem is these techniques lead to false confessions. They're high-risk techniques. They might also lead to true confessions, but they create an increased risk of leading to false confessions. They also, I think, corrupt police culture. They create a culture where police can cut corners and lie and manipulate and deceive. And if you, act, if you, if you combine this with investigative bias, confirmation bias, the guilt presumptive nature of interrogation, what we know about false confessions, it's, it, it becomes a perfect storm too often. It, it contributes to breaking down people's wills, inducing hopelessness, and making them think, even if they're innocent, they have no choice but to confess. There are others who will say, for moral reasons, you should never allow police to lie. They don't in New Zealand, in Australia, in Germany, in England all the way down the list, very few societies that we would compare ourselves to allow, if any, allow police lying. So a few follow-up thoughts and questions. I guess what should happen when best practices are violated? And should it matter if we're talking about more egregious ones like minimization and maximization versus more minor ones, relatively speaking, um, like a best practice that requires a camera angle to capture both interrogator and the defendant confessor? Then at a higher level, how do we resolve this ongoing tension between giving law enforcement enough leeway to secure bona fide confessions versus compromising accuracy of confessions if we allow overly aggressive interrogation tactics? And finally, through what mechanisms should we be searching for this equilibrium point? Uh, through police reform, judicial discretion and checks in the courtroom, laws and regulations? Well, I think that's a great question. In terms of the videotaping, there is research that suggests that it should be a dual camera perspective, which is easy to do. Uh, I, I don't think that should be an ipso facto violation of law, but uh, I do think that should be part of the best practice. But what your question makes me think of is a couple things. I mean, we always have this tension because we want efficient, effective investigative methods, but we also uh, want to respect individual rights and dignity and autonomy and freedom of choice. And so there's, there's always going to be a tension between that, those two things. Now, I think we can reconcile those tensions and do our best 
a couple of the things that I've talked about for years, they just don't seem to gain any traction. But uh, I think law students and lawyers may especially appreciate this. So at the front end, I would like some kind of suspicion or cause threshold. So to your point about more judicial discretion, yes, that just like in a search or seizure, here's the logic. Whenever you interrogate somebody, you put them in jeopardy. You expose them to jeopardy because it's possible you're interrogating an innocent person and it's very possible your techniques, even if legally voluntary, will get them to falsely confess. So in order to expose somebody to that jeopardy, we need to have some quantum threshold of probable cause or reasonable suspicion or individualized suspicion that's met. You choose the threshold so that the defense attorney can say, look, they pulled my client out of bed in the middle of the night. There was a homicide on his block, six doors down. He has no connection to that. There was no cause here. The confession should be suppressed. So I'd have some front end threshold, minimal threshold uh, uh, of, of evidence requirement before you interrogate. And then at the back end, I, I wrote a whole law review article, actually two law review articles about this with um, uh, Peter Newfeld of the Innocence Project, Steve Drizzen of Northwestern Law School's Center on Wrongful Convictions, where looking to the law of evidence, this area of law, as you probably know, the, the area of voluntariness, it's, it's, it's hyper-constitutionalized. Uh, you're trained in law school if you want to challenge the admissibility of a confession. You go to the Fifth Amendment Miranda. You go to Fourteenth Amendment voluntariness. You go to Sixth Amendment Messiah if, if it's a post-indictment interrogation. And what we're saying is go to the law of evidence because the law of evidence, as you know, probably better than me, uh, is about excluding unreliable evidence and admitting reliable or probative evidence. And any evidence whose probative value is exceeded by its prejudicial effect, or put differently, that is more likely to prejudice the trier of fact than be probative or helpful or accurate, needs to be excluded. And we make the judges gatekeepers of evidence pre-trial before exposing it to the trier of fact. So what we were calling for are suppression motions where, based on the social science, lawyers using the law of evidence can say, this confession lacks probative value. Here's why. Social scientists say these are the indicia of unreliability. It has none of them, uh, and there are contradictions, errors, um, inconsistencies, uh, obviously logical loopholes. This is a highly non-probative piece of evidence. It's very weakly probative, if at all, and yet we have all this research showing that even bad confessions significantly bias the trier effect. So the probative value is low, the prejudicial effect is high, you should exclude it by not allowing it to go to the jury. Now, one could run that kind of motion alongside the more traditional Miranda or voluntariness motions, and if the confession was excluded, you might say, well, Professor Leo, you just said 95% of cases are plea bargained anyway. That would create a different plea bargaining dynamic, and of course, we would keep it out of evidence at trial. So, so I do think there's a lot of room here for more judicial involvement, judicial discretion, regulation of best practices based on the social science at the front end and the back end, in addition to recording requirements, 
um, changing the admissibility of certain interrogation techniques and not letting interrogations go for unduly lengthy periods of time. That actually ties together everything nicely and provides a good overview for the final part of our discussion today regarding specific reforms to our criminal justice system. And as you mentioned, improvements can be made both at the interrogation stage as well as at the trial stage, but also that reform should involve collaboration with social psychologists and psychiatrists. And so could you describe some of the key experimental findings and concerns over external validity, as well as propose a few future avenues of research that might be fruitful? Okay, now the experimental stuff. So, so social science has multiple methodologies, and sometimes the, the particular methodologies are more associated with certain fields. We all know anthropology and sociology are more likely to do social work. Psychology, of course, is more likely to be experimental. Now, there are advantages and disadvantages of every methodology. So if we, if we hold up experiments as the golden standard, yeah, under certain conditions, we like experiments better because we can, we can control, we can randomize, and we can parse out causation, strictly speaking. However, um, experiments are not always easy to do. And so we have the problem of ethical constraints. If you are studying lung cancer, you can't do a study, for example, where you have a cohort of 20-year-olds in 10-year intervals smoke two packs of cigarettes a day and then have the other group, 20-year-olds, in 10-year intervals, not smoke, and then measure this over time because, in fact, you'd be inducing lung cancer. So in our situation, we cannot use many of the techniques that police use. We cannot recreate crimes that, that the police interrogate, you know, rapes and murders. We can't falsely accuse people. So the experimental paradigm or environment is, is limited. So the kind of experiments that we can get approved by our ethics board, one of them, which is a famous type of experiment, is called the alt-key experiment. So you have uh, undergraduates typically typing on a keyboard, doing learning time experiments, and the investigator says, or the, the graduate student or the professor says, don't hit the alt-key. If you hit the alt key, the computer is going to explode or you know crash. That's the word, crash. And so, uh, so whatever you do, just don't hit the alt key. The person doesn't know that the computer is rigged to crash. And then the experimenter comes in and says, why did you hit the alt key? And, and the, the, the student says, I didn't hit the alt key. And the experimenter says, yes, you did, even if the student didn't. And then some number of confessions elicited are false admissions to hitting the all key. Now, uh, you asked the question about external validity. What that means is to what extent does the experiment model the conditions in the real world of what you're studying? And the criti criticism of this study, which is very clever and was an innovation in the research, many scientific fields, we go back long enough, great innovations that are a product of their time, that have been superseded by advances that never would have occurred but for the initial innovation. So the critique is that, first of all, uh, maybe they did hit the all key. How do you know they didn't hit the all key? So maybe they really did, and it's not a false confession. 
Critique number two is there's no consequence. So what if they admit to hitting the alt key? Uh, there's no consequence to them. And so this doesn't have a lot of external validity. That is the, the criticism. Now, there's an experimental paradigm that has superseded that, which has more external validity that researchers tend to rely on and is better for other reasons as well. This is where you have undergraduates go into a laboratory and do an experiment, or do a problem-solving exercise, and they're told you, you can't cooperate with other undergraduates. That would be cheating. And, of course, the undergraduates are familiar with cheating and the honor code and the, what happens to you if you cheat or plagiarize. And then there are confederates who are supposed to be undergraduates who essentially induce some of them to cheat. And then the um, undergraduates are interrogated. And the ones who cheated, how many give true confessions? The ones who didn't cheat, how many give false confessions? And so that paradigm is better, or that experiment framework is better because number one, there we really know the ground truth, whether they did cheat or not. Number two, there is a consequence. Now, it's not the same as confessing to rape or murder, but there's a real consequence. What if they admit to cheating? What's going to happen to them, right? Sometimes they're very nervous after they admit, especially if they admit falsely. And then number three, it induces both true and false confessions. And so you can look at the ratio of true to false confessions generated by the individual techniques. And we all want legal confessions that respect legal rights that are accurate and not false, that the techniques that have the highest ratio of true to false confessions, I think we can all agree we should be using those and avoiding the ones that have the lowest ratio. Now, there's one more thing I want to say, which is that even though this experimental method is imperfect. It doesn't have the external validity that we would like, ideally, because there's, for ethical reasons, we can't coerce, we can't torture, we can't make people falsely accused of, of serious crimes, like I mentioned. It's only one line of research. There's another line of research of real-world cases, aggregated case studies, archival research, observational research, and that has strong external validity. It models, in fact, it studies what goes on in the real world, but it doesn't have strong internal validity. The internal validity is, um, can you randomize? Can you um, do experimental controls? Uh, can you separate cause and effect? And uh, so that research tends to find the same things, the real world research, high external validity, low internal validity, as the experimental research, which has relatively or comparatively low internal external validity and high internal validity. And so we call that in social science convergent validity, when multiple methods with different strengths and weaknesses converge on or reinforce similar findings, it gives us greater confidence in the whole of these findings, despite the weaknesses of or the limitations of one or two or three methodologies of social science. In addition to judicial involvement informed by developments in social psychology, what types of changes need to be made at the interrogation stage? We've talked about the length of the interrogation sessions and mandatory recordings. Those reforms seem relatively straightforward. 
Do you have any specific recommendations vis-a-vis the presentation of false evidence? There's usually kind of three possibilities. One is, well, maybe there's four. One is ban it outright, which most researchers, social science researchers say, police should not be able to falsify or lie about any evidence at all. And then the other end of the extreme would be police should be able to lie about any evidence so long as it doesn't violate some other law. You know, you can't, you can't say, if you don't confess, you're getting the death penalty, and then later say in court, but you guys said I could lie, because that is a threat. So lies that become threats or promises of leniency. So that would be the limiting principle at the other end of the spectrum. In the middle, you could say police should be able to lie about some forms of evidence, but not others. So some have said, look, if you tell somebody you've got their DNA or you tell them science proves their guilt, they're, you're going you're gonna to overcome their will. You can lie about something else, but don't lie about science or don't lie about forensic science. That seems like an odd way to split the baby to me, but maybe it is the baby splitting. And then some courts have said, yes, police can lie about evidence, regardless of the type of evidence, orally, but they can't put it on paper. They can't say the Chicago Police Department laboratory found your fingerprints and, oh, by the way, here it is. Here's the laboratory report. The police officer can tell the suspect the Chicago Police Department laboratory has your fingerprints and they match to the beer bottle left behind by the true perpetrator and therefore it's you. But if they fabricate written documentary lies, then it's excluded. So this is kind of tricky because the kind of intermediate solutions don't really make sense, right? They're they're weak and a little inconsistent. And so most people either support police deception uh, subject to not violating the 14th Amendment prohibition on coercion that leads to involuntary psychological or physical coercion um, because of involuntary statements, or um, allow it outright subject to to the 14th Amendment limitation, or don't allow it, right? The the in-between is hard. Thanks, Professor Leo. And I guess the final interrogation technique is minimization. And so how can we make sure that minimization doesn't flirt too closely with the promise of leniency line? And could you tie this back to our earlier conversation about the proper levers through which we should pursue reform? Is this best accomplished through suppression motions in the judiciary, updates to training manuals, or something else altogether? So so I think it's a really good question. Some, some of the minimization, some of the maximization does not communicate expectations of differential treatment and punishment. So um, if we had more time, I could give other examples. But I would say that all minimization and maximization techniques that communicate differential sentencing outcomes, differential punishment outcomes, different consequences, depending on whether you confess or deny, should be prohibited based on the social science research. So there would be two points. One would be research, police interrogation training manuals and programs should say, research shows these techniques are problematic, don't use them, and judges should suppress confessions that use them, right? That, That would be the way to go with minimization and maximization. And of course, if there's recording of interrogations, there's a full record of what occurred. So there's no swearing contest about who said what. And it really should be, in my view, research-based because, again, some minimization and maximization is not problematic, in my opinion, because it doesn't communicate differential punishment or sentencing 
or charging outcomes. And with that, I'd like to conclude today's episode with one final question, and that's 30 years ago, New York Police Department Commissioner Kelly said, quote, if there are lessons to be learned from this case, we invite them, end quote. And I think a lot of us are left wondering, how much have we actually learned? Many commentators have drawn parallels between the Central Park 5 case and more recent happenings such as the murder of the Barnard College student in Morningside Heights. Are there any takeaways from the way our legal system is handling these more recent cases? And are you optimistic about the future of our criminal justice system and the way it treats false confession evidence? I would say that there is another case that occurred, I believe, in the Bronx where there was a jogger and she was murdered and people drew a lot of parallels between that and the Central Park jogger case. And the individual was, I think, intellectually and cognitively um, had a low IQ, uh, had deficits, and was interrogated for a number of hours off tape and asserted that he falsely confessed, even though he was convicted. And so there's other cases in New York. Let me talk generally, and then I'll talk specifically about New York. First of all, we know so much more now than we did 30 years ago. There's just been so many great studies, so much education. It's a different world in terms of our knowledge of how interrogation works, how and why we get true and false and involuntary confessions, and what we can do to minimize and prevent them. So it's just uh, an explosion of great research in the social sciences. Now, how much of that is filtered down to police practice and legal practice is another issue. The New York Police Department has been strongly resistant to reform in this area for many, many years. I believe they recently started recording. They had to be dragged through the mud to get it. But we need full recording in New York of all crimes at all levels. And I think the police there need to be trained. The culture needs to be changed. So I don't see New York as a model agency. My understanding is that Seattle may be a model agency. A couple of years ago, I was contacted to do some training. I referred it to a British retired homicide captain and detective who is also a researcher in this area. He got a PhD and brings with it the more enlightened practices they use in England that often goes by the name of investigative interviewing. Now, I I worry that I'm getting away from your question, but what I would say is that we know so much more that we can do best practices training and there's best practices knowledge for police, for prosecutors, for defense attorneys, for judges. I'm confident we can improve practice and outcome, but I'm not confident that New York is anywhere close to being there, despite the fact that New York is a famously liberal city, a jewel in the crown of American cities, historically in America. It is probably one of the most reactionary criminal justice systems and police departments in this area, you know, across the country. It has not been open to reform or self-criticism. And even in the Central Park Jogger case, you know, they're still asserting they did nothing wrong and try to come up with these cockamamie theories, which are physically impossible, linking Mateus Reyes, who committed the crime, we know that with 100% certainty, to the boys who are factually innocent, which we know with 100% certainty. But I'm very optimistic about the future in terms of our knowledge. I'm less optimistic about it filtering down to resistant police departments. 
Thank you, Professor Leo. It sounds like this is an important conversation to be had and that we have our work cut out for us. I want to thank you, on behalf of the Law Review and our listeners, for the engaging, instructive conversation today. It was a privilege having you on the episode and benefiting from your experience and your knowledge. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been an honor to be on this show. Thank you very much. This has been Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. Follow us on Twitter at UCHILREV and like us on Facebook. You can find more episodes of Briefly on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. Thanks, and we'll see you soon for the next episode of Briefly Season 4.